Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Antoinette Lachouf with Annika Smithhurst. So if you're a first home buyer, the major parties really seem to want your vote this election. You've got the Liberal Party selling their plan to let you put your super into your first home. This will make it a bit easier, you know, for Australians to buy their first home sooner. Taking years off the need to pay rent and the challenges of saving. On the other side, there's Labor promising to put up to 40% of the price for you. That's like almost going in halves with the government, but then if you sell it, a Labor government would get its share back. I want to build a better future and I want to help more Australians own a stake in it. So if you're trying to crack into the property market, maybe you should switch into the last few days of the election if you haven't already voted, because there could actually be something in it for you. In this episode, we get you across each side's housing policy to find out how much of a difference they'll actually make. But first, the headlines. It's Wednesday, May 18th. And the race for the election has tightened, according to the latest poll conducted by nine newspapers. In a two-party preferred sense, that's 50-50, which is what we say is equal, Labor is leading just 51 to 49. Now, that gap has actually gotten smaller. You go back a few weeks and it was actually Mm. 54 to 46 with Labor in the lead. And that was only a couple of weeks ago. So, Annika, these latest results have been conducted after the LNP's latest superannuation housing policy, which we're going to hear about a little more in just a moment, but also Labor's backing of a 5.1% increase to the minimum wage. Yeah, the results are also within the margin of error. So that's plus or minus 2.2%. It's sort of a buffer that the pollsters give themselves, which means really either party is still in a position to win on Saturday. It's um, pretty incredible given where you're at, as you say, and there has mm-hmm. been some you know, big policies announced. So a lot of weight will be put on that. But also, I think a lot of people don't turn their mind to the election until we get a lot closer. So some of those early results could have actually been uh, you know, indicative of people not really knowing who they were going to vote for when they were polled. Yeah, I know the few people and in random settings I've spoken to don't seem to have made their mind up. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But Annika, I will also ask you, because we often hear, but the polls get it wrong. Look at the last election. You can't trust the polls. <laughs> Yes, Brexit, Trump. uh, Pollsters haven't had a great time over the last little while. But look, it is significant when you're moving that much. That doesn't mean that's going to be the result and it doesn't mean that's going to be the result in every seat. We sort of talk about two-party preferred as sort of what we might see across the country. There will be seats where Labor do incredibly better than that and probably a lot worse. So I think what is significant, though, is the primary vote. Now, that's how many people, the percentage of people that vote for one of those parties. Mm-hmm. Neither party gets to 50% usually, so they have to rely on preferences. Now, the coalitions is up slightly from 33 to 34%. Labor's has dropped. Now, Labor usually gets preferences from the Greens. The Libs usually get preferences from more conservative parties. It doesn't always work like that in every seat. but And now we've I got think- a whole bunch of teals, the independents, <laughs> where we don't know where their preferences are going to go. Yeah, not necessarily. Some aren't preferencing. So it'll be interesting on the day to see where that balances out. But I think you would be heartened if you were a coalition MP, given where they started at the start of the campaign, uh, seeing that sort of uh, small jump towards them. And interestingly, Scott Morrison remains preferred Prime Minister. He's got 40% of the vote and Anthony Albanese at 36%. 
So staying on the campaign trail, we can expect another day highlighting cost of living. It's because data on real wages is set to be released. And Annika, I'm going to bring you in again to quickly decipher what real wages are compared to, I don't know, what, fake wages? (laughs) Look, it's a little bit of a simplistic uh, definition, but it's how much money an individual has after accounting for inflation. And we know that inflation figure came out recently and there's been a lot of discussion about whether, I guess, wages should keep up with the rate of inflation. So that comes after a day focused on how exactly the parties are going to pay for these election promises. The coalition has unveiled its plans to improve that budget bottom line by $1 billion. And they'll do this largely by cutting funds from the public service. Now, if our senior public servants, and they're paid well, if they can't find $2.7 billion out of a budget of 327.3, well, I've got a lot more confidence in them that they can achieve that. Prime Minister Scott Morrison there. Now, Labor will announce its plans on Thursday about how it's going to pay for its promises, with Labor leader Anthony Albanese asked whether that will give voters enough time to actually get their head around the figures before Saturday. Let's be very clear here. You have an $80 billion deficit at the moment. You have a trillion dollars of debt by this government. You have our announcements, every single one of them. We have put are costing on. We've been transparent. Now, this comes up every election Mm. time. Will they have enough time? This is the way it's always done. I've never seen costings released early. They're always released on the Thursday. (laughs) When the coalition did that last uh, election, didn't they? They released the costing the Thursday before the election. Yeah, look, it's always done in the last week. I've never seen uh, too many examples, really, any uh, that I can think of, where it's not been done in the last week. And often... You know, these are just costings. Uh, Mm. You have to take it all with a grain of salt too. Once they're implemented, things always cost a little bit more, as anyone Mm. that's tried to budget know. But it is a good way to, I guess, get a sense of how either party will manage the budget. And we're going to have more information about that by the time we go to the polls on Saturday. But a lot of people have already voted. Mm. So I don't know how much weight it'll actually have. And the Ukrainian city of Mariupol has fallen to Russia. Now, It's Russia's biggest victory of the war so far and follows weeks of resistance where Ukrainian soldiers were holed up under that steelworks in the city. So Russia has called the operation a mass surrender, but Ukrainians have avoided using the word, saying the garrison had completed its mission. Now, the fate of 260 soldiers who have been transported to Moscow back cities is unclear. Russia saying they could be tried and even executed. Ukraine saying they will be swapped in a prisoner exchange. And a Melbourne teenager has become the youngest Australian ever to climb Everest, the world's tallest mountain. Gabby Canese completed the climb at 19 years of age. She had actually originally planned to climb Everest as a 17-year-old in 2020, but COVID-19 put those plans on ice. Gabby and her mother Jane became one of the few mother-daughter pairings to enter the Everest death zone together. Any climb that passes 8,000 metres is considered the death zone because of the extreme conditions and low oxygen levels in the air. Now, there's 14 mountains in the world above that. Gabby's now climbed three of them. And just in case she hadn't convinced you that she was a big enough overachiever, um, one day after conquering Everest, most people would like relax, pat themselves on the back. Um, (laughs) Gabby just then decided, hey, why not? spend the next day climbing the world's fourth highest mountain. 
literally the last thing I would want to do after climbing Everest. Not that I could even do that. How incredible. Congratulations, Gabby, from everyone back here. Thanks, Annika. We'll chat again tomorrow and we'll pick your brain for a 101 quick election issues dump for those of us who haven't really been listening for the past six weeks. But next up, Katrina and Tom talk houses. Both sides are going in big to win the first homeowner vote. So how exactly do they plan to put a non-rental roof over your heads? Hey, Katrina Blowers here. Well, the housing market, it's just become such a nightmare for a lot of young people to crack. In the 90s, house prices were only two and a half times the average income. Now they're six times the annual income and people under 40 are way less likely to own their own home than any other time in the last 60 years. It's just incredible to think about that. It's been a pretty rude scene, especially over the last 12 to 18 months where prices just went through the roof during the pandemic. Now we're heading into an election where it feels like finally the major parties are actually competing for the votes of first home buyers. Both major parties trying to woo voters with um, actually quite different ideas. On the coalition side, it's the superannuation scheme, so taking money out of your super to put into your house deposit. And on Labor's side, it's the government taking an equity stake with you up to 40% of your home, but only for 10,000 people. So clear differences from both major parties. And we wanted to dive into how these schemes actually work, what they would mean for the market, and whether any of them actually move the needle forward if you're looking to buy your first home, given there are so many other economic factors at play right now. To answer all these questions is the Head of Residential Research at CoreLogic, Eliza Owen, So we've chosen her because she gives great analysis, but she's also Gen Y, so she totally gets all the issues facing our generation. So Eliza, thank you so much for joining us. Do you think this election is a first home buyer's bonanza? There's a lot on offer. Is that your sense compared to other recent campaigns? I agree. I think there certainly is a lot more being announced. I definitely feel a lot more busy this time around. That's a good thing. There's a lot more initiatives around home ownership. It's not surprising given we've seen the market increase at the fastest rate in 30 years. And in the past 18 months, national property prices have risen the equivalent of $166,000 for the typical property price in Australia. So I think because of that, and I think also because politically we've seen a shift from the Labor Party in particular from a focus on bringing house prices down to a focus on just getting people into the housing market while trying not to disturb housing values. And because of that, you've kind of got both major parties taking the same approach to issues of falling rates of home ownership. And maybe that's generated a bit more competition in terms of what's on offer with that same approach. So now the federal government has proposed an additional amount of spaces, up to 50,000 spaces for low deposit home loans, up from 10,000 introduced in 2020. 
I guess we should dive into the major policies from each side now and analyse those a bit. Let's begin with the Coalition's key policy, which has been making headlines all week. So they announced their superannuation access policy over the weekend, where you can, if you're a first home buyer and you've got a 5% deposit, you can invest up to 40% of your superannuation or 50k to buy your first home. What do you reckon about this? And do you think it will help most first home buyers? This is a really interesting policy and I'm actually surprised that a lot of economists and respected housing researchers have kind of come on board with this, not necessarily because it's a great policy, but because they just tend to be more anti-super. And I think it kind of does make sense when you consider that superannuation should be used towards housing because housing is a really important pillar of retirement. Not only is it an important pillar of retirement, but it kind of makes sense that you get earlier access to it because you can enjoy the benefits of it for longer. So I do understand the argument. I think there are a few issues with it, namely that it's a massive demand side policy. Don't get me wrong, it is a little bit overblown the typical 25 to 34-year-old has about $25,000 sitting in their super at the median level. So when you talk about 40% of that, you're really only talking about a grant of about $10,000, which is equivalent to a lot of state and territory first home buyer grants. But if you unleash that kind of money en masse at the same time for absolutely everyone, whether you're really struggling to get into the housing market or 50 grand makes up 40% of your super, which by the way, if that is you at a young age, you're probably quite well off and Mm. probably don't need help getting into the housing market. But if you do all of that and unleash all of that at once, it will have an inflationary effect on the housing market. It will push up prices. Again, some people could really use that bit of extra cash to deal with the upfront costs of housing. But you erode the benefit of dipping into your super if house prices are going up. So I think if you were going to go with a scheme like this, it would be better to do something smaller to start off with and more targeted to middle and low income earners in order to create more equality in home ownership opportunities like they've done with the first home loan deposit scheme and like Labor have proposed with their home shared equity scheme. Yeah, well, let's get into Labor's shared equity scheme. So basically, the government will go in with you for a house paying up to 40% of the value, but this is only for 10,000 people. Now, just to check one thing with you, Eliza, I mean, annually, how many first home buyers are there in Australia and just 10 thousand places come anywhere near that number? They'd be closer to 100,000 in any given year. And more recently, it has been more because there's been a low interest rate environment and so many incentives on offer. So when you consider 10,000 places, it does sound like a small scheme. It is. But to be honest, that's intentional with a scheme like this. In fact, when Grattan first floated the idea of a shared equity scheme and called for one of the parties to take it on in this election, they actually suggested starting out with 5,000 places. And the reason is what I was talking about before. If you introduce too much housing demand at once, you're just going to push up prices and erode the benefits that these schemes offer. 
I'm interested in the impact that uh, the LNP's policy in particular will have on the cost of housing and, and pushing the price of housing up even further. I mean, we had uh, the LNP's own superannuation minister this week revealing that uh, she thought that that would be the case. But given we're now in a situation where interest rates are increasing and they're likely to keep going up and people are saying that will dampen down the market, what do you think we've got these two kind of conflicting impacts on the industry? Crystal ball gazing, what do you think will happen? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's interesting that the timing of this kind of policy, ultimately, we do expect house prices to come down. They already are coming down in central and more expensive areas of Sydney and Melbourne. That's important because those high-end central markets of Sydney and Melbourne tend to be the bellwether for the rest of the housing market. They're the first movers. Higher interest rates push down the price of housing because it increased the cost of finance. And so you get less demand for housing finance, which ultimately means there's less money that can be paid for a home. So anything that reinflates the amount of money that can be put toward the cost of a home is going to offset some of that decline. To be honest, I'm not sure whether this means we could see property prices more sidelined or actually still coming down. But I imagine that it'll just be a smaller decline than what we may have otherwise seen if we see the introduction of this super home buyer policy and, you know, more first home buyer demand coming into the market to offset the decline in demand. What's your view on the market? Do you support the the estimates of the major banks that we're sort of looking at a potentially a 15, 20% decline over the next few years? And How does that interact with these policy announcements? Yeah, so we're in an environment of higher interest rates and higher interest rates tend to put downward pressure on the property market. The RBA has done modelling suggesting that a two percentage point increase in the cash rate would take prices down by 15% over a two-year period. I think that's a reasonable expectation. And it's really interesting, the timing of the introduction of these more demand side policies, because they might actually work to offset some of that decline when you're getting more demand from first home buyers. But ultimately, look, we're already seeing a softening in clearance rates, property prices falling in parts of Sydney and Melbourne, and higher levels of supply in terms of advertised listings coming onto the market, so more people wanting to sell. So at least in the short term, that does point to a decline in property prices more broadly. Okay, so you're talking about an expected softening in prices and historically, a lot of incentives to try and get into the market. So would you say this is actually a really good time to be a first home buyer? Well, it, <laughs> the deposit hurdle might start to come down when we see more significant price falls. The catch there is that the declines are coming off the back of higher interest rates. So if you are considering buying, definitely sit down and work out what those repayments are going to look like at a higher interest cost, because you might find that even if property prices fall substantially, your monthly mortgage repayments would still be higher than what they might be now, just because of the cost of debt and the fact that it's rising. So do you think maybe we're being distracted by all these interesting sounding policies whilst both major parties actually 
avoid the bigger, more challenging issues. Absolutely. None of these policies address the underlying issues behind housing affordability, which is if you want to make something less expensive, basic supply and demand tells us you either increase supply or you reduce demand. And of course, these policies just increase demand. You know, I think the reason is that housing has become such a double-edged sword over time. It's an implicit pillar of retirement. A lot of people use the wealth that is built into housing to actually fund expensive services later in life, like their healthcare and their aged care, or they use it to, you know, it's just become a much more accessible way of generating wealth. And I think a lot more Australian households have relied on that. That's where trying to enact policies that reduce property prices become really controversial. Mm. And I think part of that means that we need a more holistic approach to housing affordability. For example, if we had other productive sectors where people could grow their wealth, if we had action on climate change, that would help to reduce the impact of supply that we see from extreme weather events. If we invested in more in healthcare and aged care from a public perspective, then that might reduce the need to grow your wealth through housing to fund some of those big expenses. And in addition, I think we just need to rethink the way that we look at housing in this country. You know, do we want it to be that source of investment and wealth generation or does it just need to be somewhere to live? That was Eliza Owen, who's CoreLogic's Head of Residential Research in Australia. Does any of that fill you with hope, Tom, or does that just confuse you even further or make you feel more despondent that this is kind of a headline-grabbing exercise and not really a longer-term fix. Look, there is a, a lot of information to consider, but I think it's actually a pretty interesting time to be a first home buyer. I think both of the major parties' policies have their merits, but also their problems. The problem with the Liberal Party super idea is that most people don't have much super at that age, so it won't make a big difference. Labor's policy, very expensive for the government, also very few places. And all of this is happening while the market goes through a bit of a a turbulent time where prices might actually start to go down. So even though the major parties aren't addressing supply substantially or or tackling tax incentives, it's actually a a pretty good time to be looking because the market could be softening and you could use one of these policies depending which side gets in on Saturday. Mm. Listener.